Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest. Today is the 19th of January, 2020. We're going to start discussing a um, autoimmune disease profile that I've been conducting along with an arc of lectures that I've been doing in conjunction with my Verev Med Authentic Biochemistry Studios and in video. Those can be found on my Facebook page. Just look up Dan Guerra or Verev Med, uh, and you will find them there um, on, on Facebook. Uh, also, um, we can discuss later how you might be able to access it directly from Authentic Biochemistry. You should be able to do it. At any rate, I'm going to continue on with this discussion of autoimmune disease. So let's get started. First of all, I'm going to start talking about apoptosis. Now, why am I talking about apoptosis or programmed cell death in relationship to uh, autoimmune disease? Well, autoimmune disease is caused by uh, an uncontrolled inflammatory response. Uncontrolled inflammatory responses have to do with uh, certain immune-associated cells, particularly T lymphocytes and plasma cells producing immunoglobulins and cytokine interaction between T cells, B cells, and then the innate immune response associated with antipresenting cells that ultimately lead to an auto-inflammatory response, which can be triggered by activation and replication and auto-production of memory cells, resident memory cells that can be found in various tissue beds, including, for example, in the central nervous system, where some auto-inflammatory diseases can wreak havoc and induce even some neuropsychiatric conditions, some of which have been well described. These are all idiopathic. They can be induced because of a triggering of an antigen that um, is a self-antigen, that is, it's produced by the host, produced by, in, in our case, in biomedicine by a human system, but that mimics or has antigen or epitopic mimicry to uh, a protein or peptide or sometimes even a lipid that's associated with a pre-association with a bacterial or viral infection, sometimes even fungal. So that's the way it kind of gets initiated. You have these T resident memory cells that are triggered. So that's why we have to first of all talk about programmed cell death because that's how many of the T lymphocytes and in general, the leukocytes, which comprise the immune system cellular repertoire, uh, can be engaged and induced in an auto-inflammatory response. So that's prolegomenal to uh, a discussion of a protein called MCL. There's an MCL1 protein, which is essentially an apoptosis regulator. It's a member of the family of proteins known as B-cell lymphoma 2 or BCL2. So first I'm going to talk to you about MCL1 talk about how it controls apoptosis, and then I'm going to bring in the disease repertoire. Okay, so MCL1 is upregulated in myeloid cell differentiation, and the MCL1, that, that particular protein, is apparently necessary for the survival of precursor populations within the hemopoietic, hepatocytic, and indeed dermal cell lineages. So it has a wide-ranging control. Now, it's not a transcription factor. <laughs> it's more protein that's related to 
membrane dynamics associated with, in fact, the mitochondrial membrane, in particular cell um, epitopes, particularly those cells with the lineages of hematopoietic, hepatocytic, and dermal. So a conditional knockout of MCL1 in mice um, resulted in an extensive apoptosis of neuroprogenitor cells, or NPCs, in the developing forebrain. And MCL1 is the only known anti-apatotic protein necessary for the survival of both embryonic and adult neural um, progenitor cells, or NPCs. Now, knockdown of MCL1 in post-mitotic neurons, so after they've gone through a cell division, does not result in apoptosis, but rather results in autophagy. And that allows for some conjecture that perhaps MCL1's anti-apoptotic role is temporally defined during the early stages of neurogenesis, at least in the mouse model. Now, the human MCL1 gene encodes, again, an anti-apoptotic protein, which is, again, a member of the BCL2 family. However, there are alternative splice variants, and that results in multiple transcript variants. Indeed, the longest gene product, isoform 1, enhances cell survival by its canonical role of inhibiting apoptosis, while any of the alternatively spliced shorter gene products, such as isoform 2 and isoform 3, promote apoptosis and are death-inducing. So simply having splice variation of that one polypeptide, the splice variation at the level of RNA, and then having the mature proteins being expressed can control either inhibiting apoptosis, if it's the long form, or actually promoting it. So here you have a regulation, obviously. So MCL1 is the apoptosis regulator and it's, of course, a protein-coding gene. So it's not making um, small RNA molecules. It's making actual protein. There are diseases associated with MCL1, including myeloid leukemia and indolent B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Those are two major human diseases that are linked to that protein. Among its related pathways, the proteins involved in are cytokine signaling uh, within the immune system in general, and in particular, the TH17, T helper cell 17 cell differentiation. So MCL1 has been well published. So that all comes from Cell Death and Differentiation, a paper that was published in 2019, <coughs> volume 26, page 1501. And the first author in there is Fogarty. That's where we're getting this information. Now, both neural stem cells and progenitor cells, which are collectively called neural precursor cells, those NPCs, generate respectively differentiated neurons and macroglia. The murine FEC pool expands from embryonic day 9, 10, and neurogenesis begins the very next day at, at E11. When NPCs, th those, those progenitor cells, exit the cell cycle, <coughs> they start if initiating terminal differentiation. And they do it with program cell death, controlling the total number of cells in the mouse nervous system. Now, B-cell lymphoma 2, that BCL2 pro-apoptosis plus anti-apoptosis proteins, thus officiate the entire apoptotic program, thus limiting the total number of cells in the central nervous system in the mouse. Now, in particular, it is the anti-apoptotic members of the myeloid cell leukemia 1, the MCL1, 
and the BCL2-related gene long isoform, known as BCLXL, and they appear absolutely indispensable for mammalian nervous system development, functioning hierarchically through neurodevelopment. And this includes all the way from mice to man. But one of the details about that program is hijacked during termogenesis. That's a question you might ask, because obviously if you have a lymphoma or a leukemia, you've got some kind of oncogenic event going on. And this, these proteins seem to be related to that because they're controlling cell death, you see? So how are those factors regulating the immune response? And are they associated indeed, not just with tumor genesis, but with our bigger discussion, what I'm most emphasizing now, which are autoimmune diseases. Okay, so that lays the stage. Now, more about BCLX type proteins. The anti-apatitic BCLX long isoform is a predominant isoform in the central nervous system where its expression tracks neurogenesis in the mouse at E11 and then in post-mitotic neurons by E13.5, okay? A knockout of BCLX is embryonic lethal. That's very significant at E13. And that's evidenced by apoptosis of both immature neurons and all the hemopoietic cells. A conditional knockout demonstrates that BCLX is necessary for catecholaminergic upper layer cortical and a CA1 to CA3 hippocampal cell lineages. So depending on what cell lineage you're looking at and the temporal distribution of looking at that signal of BCLX, it has different effects on controlling the total number of cells. This was determined by knockout studies of protein. <clears throat> Interestingly, a knockout of BCLX of immature retinal ganglion neurons does result in apoptosis, whereas adult neurons do not proceed through programmed cell death. So again, the age of the cell system is a big key factor in whether or not the protein, even one specific form, the long form of BCL, is acting either anti-apoptotic or pro-apoptotic. Now, just like MCL1, the anti-apoptotic role of BCL-XL in neurogenesis is therefore temporal. Temporal. There's a time signature to it. So, for example, a conditional deletion of both MCL1 and BCLX, which is a double conditional knockout, or DKO we call it, results in a complete loss of the central nervous system by embryonic stage 14, day 14. <clears throat> and so you can see this in studies where they've done the double knockout. The double knockout embryo reveals complete loss of the entire central nervous system. The thickness of the developing cortical plate appears similar in control and only in the B knockouts, only in the BCL knockouts, okay? But appears much thinner when you're looking at the MCL long isoform knockout. And that's consistent with an extensive apoptosis that occurs in the forebrain at that time. Now, in contrast, only a remnant of tissue is observed around the peripherally of the brain cavity in the double knockout mutant. Okay, so it's really important. So the single knockouts of each of those genes do have an apoptotic signal, but the double knockout gives you the full-blown embryonic lethal. That's a really significant bit of data. So how do you conclude from that data? MCL1 and BCL long form XL are essential for cell survival during developmental neurogenesis in the mouse. <laughs> the BCL XL 
anti-apoptotic role can partially compensate for the MCL1 in differentiating neuroprogenitor cells. BAX is a protein that's common pro-apoptotic target for both of those anti-apoptotic, that is MCL1 and BCLXL. So BAX is a pro-apoptotic target by those two proteins. The overall, the study we're just looking at in that cell death paper demonstrates that MCL1 and BCL long form XL are crucial anti-apoptotic BCL2 members required for nervous system development where they control the BAX protein, which again is ultimately mitochondrial associated pro-apoptotic protein. So based on the data from that paper, it appears that the temporal requirements of MCL1 and BCLXL occur during neurogenesis. And the anti-apoptotic protein dependency from MCL1 to BCLXL is developmentally transitional. The double conditional knockout, the DKO model we just were looking at, suggests that survival of the central nervous system is indeed dependent on the combined expression of both those proteins. Both those proteins working at different temporal stages during neurogenesis to block that back signal by, by blocking basically apoptosis. The record then reveals that the expression of those regulatory proteins in conjunction with membrane lipids, something we did not talk about yet, within a framework of even epigenetic alterations, that is that splice isoform activity, and we're gonna find out later also with interfering RNAs, through time and tissue mass association via neuroimmunomedication may be essential role in neurological diseases and all of those are going to track the infl inflammatory response. So far, that's what we've been able to glean from this paper. Now, here's a paper published in Cell Death and Disease 2020, just this month, January 2nd. This is volume 11, page, starting with page 5. Now, this paper talks about a protein called ALG2, and it couples T cell activation and apoptosis by regulating proteasomal activity and ultimately influencing MCL1 stability. Okay, wow. Okay, that's a whole lot now. Now we're well into T-cell homeostasis. T-cell homeostasis is critical for the proper functioning of the immune system in mammals. Following a sharp expansion upon pathogen infection, most T-cells die in order to keep balance in the immune system because T-cells can really wreak a lot of uh, pro-inflammatory response havoc. Now that process is controlled by death receptors during the early phase and BCL2 proteins in later phase. Death receptors being like PDL1 to PD1. So MCL1, which is that BCL2 family member, plays a pivotal role in T-cell survival. Because remember, it's anti-apoptotic. As a fast turnover protein, Okay. MCL1 levels are tightly regulated by the 26S proteasome, and this protein ALG2 was critical for the MCL1 stability, which is then going to be anti-apoptotic. That process is all mediated by a direct interaction between ALG2 and another protein called RPN3, which is actually part of the 26S proteasomal protein complex. As a critical calcium sensor and signator, the ALG2 protein regulated the activity 
of the 26S proteasome upon increases to cytosolic calcium following T-cell activation. That consequently influences the stability of MCL1 and accelerates T-cell death because knocking out proteasomal turnover MCL1 is going to then promote apoptosis. Okay? That leads then to T-cell contraction and a restoration of what we can call immune homeostasis. So T-cells are destined for apoptosis upon activation. They're already destined for that. They're pre-programmed. And that echoes the previous study we were looking at about the function of ALG2 in T-cell death, okay? Because it's already been established that ALG2 is associated with T-cell death, and that's because of its regulation of the proteasome and the quick turnover of the MCL1, which is anti-apototic. It's a brand new paper that just came out that I wanted to bring up now. Okay, now <coughs> we're going to now move on to, those are small discussions of those BCL proteins, the B-cell lymphoma proteins which are anti-apatotic, except the smaller variants are pro-apatotic. And both of those, the BCL and the MCL1, both of those types of proteins have a temporal signature when it comes to T-cell turnover. And that's associated again with proteasomal turnover of those proteins as controlled by calcium influx. So I want you to get that full picture. Now I'm going to talk a little bit about lipids. Because now I'm introducing the lipid um, aspect of this autoimmune apoptotic control over cell uh, differentiation and cell longevity in the T-cell population. Okay, So follow me where I'm going here. Now, ceramide is essential. Ceramide, the lipid ceramide, which is a sphingolipid, is essential for mitochondrial apoptosis progression. The de novo synthesis of ceramide is catalyzed by a ceramide synthase pathway. And there are six different ceramide synthases, six different ones, which generate unique ceramide fatty acid molecular species. So the fatty acid that's associated with ceramide is going to be differentially expressed and found in membranes and associated with membranes, depending on which ceramide synthase was involved in that biosynthetic pathway. Now, apoptosis induces ceramide synthase, that protein, on mitochondrial and mitochondrial membranes. Those mitochondrial associated membranes are called MAMs. And basically, they create a compartment which links the ER to the mitochondria. Okay, so now we're into cellular differentiation, subcellular differentiation. So ceramide production is necessary for BCL2-associated X protein. That's the Bax protein I brought about, I brought a discussion about. It's necessary for BCL2-associated Bax to insert into the mitochondrial membrane, oligomerize subsequently, form a pore, which causes the mitochondrial outer membrane permeabilization, that's called MOMP, MOMP, and ultimately cytochrome C release, and subsequently apoptosis. So ceramide regulates BCL2 association to BACs. That ultimately opens up the membrane because it creates a pore because of BACs oligomerization. The oligomerization on the outer membrane, that MOMP, that causes permeabilization now of that mitochondrial membrane that releases cytochrome C, 
And then that ultimately leads to that particular form of program cell death, that apatitic pathway with mitochondrial associate. So ceramide synthase 2 is pro-apatitic because it enhances not only uh, this whole process I just told you about, but it also seems to enhance in cancer studies um, chemotherapy because it tanks tumor growth. And that's because it controls, it, it, it induces apoptosis, <coughs> low expression of ceramide synthase 2 is actually a negative indicator in breast cancer. It means it promotes breast cancer when you get low expression. Ceramide synthase 6 promotes therapy-induced apoptosis in colon cancer, head and neck squamous cell carcinoma, and indeed in lung carcinomas. So different isoforms of the ceramide synthase seem to promote apoptosis via that pathway I just described you, via that BCL2 associated with BACs, Primalization of the automatic membrane release of cytochrome C, and then that apathetic pathway. Now, ceramide synthesis, this whole pathway, I want you to understand it. When you synthesize ceramide, you start de novo. We start with palmitto oil coa and serine, the amino acid L serine. Uh, the first reaction uh, generates three keto schwinganine. Then there's a reduction of that compound to sphingenine, okay, Make, uh, taking the keto function uh, and turning it into an alcohol function, an OH group. That's dihydroceramide. Now, dihydroceramide then becomes desaturated to ceramide. And that desaturation introduces a trans double bond into the fatty acid moiety, okay? Now, I want you to understand that ceramide synthase, going from sphinganine to dihydroceramide, okay? Sphinganine to dihydroceramide. What that resulted in is an N-linked addition of a fatty acid. So ceramide has two fatty acids, the initial palmitate, which becomes desaturated, uh, okay? So that, that's how you get one component, fatty, fatty acyl component of ceramide. And the other one is then going to be a long chain, usually, fatty acid, which is amide-linked uh, to that original nitrogen atom from the original serine residue, which was involved in the condensation reaction to synthesize 3 sphingidine. Okay. Now, ceramide can go through a reaction called ceraminidase, which removes that amino-linked or amide-linked fatty acid. Then you can get that same compound phosphorylated, on the free hydroxyl from the um, leftover serine residue, and you make then sphingosine 1-phosphate. Sphingosine 1-phosphate works in the opposite way to ceramide. So removing that amide-linked fatty acid gives you now a sphingolipid, which works antagonistically towards what uh, ceramide normally does. So sphingosine type lipids versus ceramide type lipids, both in the same sphingolipid pathway. Just the differences they have to do with whether or not there's that amide-linked fatty acid. You remove that amide-linked fatty acid, you get into the sphingosine residues. Sphingosine then can be phosphorylated or sphingosine 1-phosphate. It's going to work con contradictory or contrary to ceramide-mediated control. Remember, ceramide controls apoptosis. So the conversion of sphingomyelin into ceramide which is carried out by sphingomyelinase, okay, also plays a role in membrane structural physical dynamics. 
And the consequence for membrane microdomain function is then generating something called membrane vesiculation, which produces a fusion-fission docking mechanism that allows for vesicular trafficking in those lipid membranes that carry out esphingomyelinase reaction. Those processes contribute directly to cellular signaling. So at the Golgi apparatus level, ceramide takes part in a metabolic flux towards sphingomyelin, diacylglycerol, and glycosphingolipids. All of that drives lipid raft formation and vesicular transport towards the plasma membrane. At the cell surface, receptor clustering in those lipid rafts, which ultimately are produced because of this sphingomyelinase reaction, the formation of endosomes can be facilitated by a transient ceramide synthesis from the sphingomyelinase pathway. Also, signaling towards mitochondria may involve glycosphingolipid-containing vesicles. So, ceramide may affect the permeability of the mitochondrial outer membranes we just talked about, the release of cytochrome C. In the effector phase of apoptosis, the breakdown of plasma membrane sphingomyelin to ceramide is indeed a direct consequence of lipid scrambling and may regulate apoptotic body formation. Therefore, ceramide formation serves many different functions depending on the location of the cell, Golgi, mitochondria versus plasma membrane. So now, look, thinking about the pathway, sphingomyelin uh, can be broken down into ceramide, and then ceramide then can be uh, further metabolized via ceraminidase to sphingosine. Sphingosine kinase can produce sphingosine 1-phosphate, and sphingosine 1-phosphate numbers working counter to the ceramide pathways, okay? Uh, and remember, the de novo pathway starts off with serine and palmitoglucoa. So you have two, two pathways, the sphingomyelin degradation pathway to make ceramide, and the de novo pathway from serine and palmitoglucoa through the reactions we already talked about. But there's one more possibility, you can actually also go through an enzyme called ceramide synthase, which is a salvage pathway from sphingosine. And sphingosine can be produced by removing the phosphate from sphingosine 1-phosphate. Three different pathways to make ceramide, each one of those differentially regulated, and each one of those then fundamentally controlling the resonant level of ceramide. All of those are going to play a key role in apoptosis, as we're going to see. So I'm going to stop here, and we're going to proceed with this whole discussion of lipids and bring it back into apoptosis of T-cells and autoimmune diseases. I just wanted to give you that precursor understanding of how sphingolipids and the BCL proteins are associated and give you a little idea about membrane trafficking and membrane turnover between the ER, the mitochondria, the Golgi, and the plasma membrane. Hopefully, you were able to synthesize all that information so that we can now come back together with it with those BCL proteins. So I'm going to stop here by saying this is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry on the 19th of January, 2020, saying uh, bye for now. <laughs>